Have you ever hidden anything under the bed? I see. Most of us have. I have hidden things under the bed before. My children have hidden things under the bed. Fig Newtons. <laughs> Money. Toys. Diaries. All kinds of things have been hidden under the bed. Why? Some things we hide under the bed because they mean much to us, because they're sentimental. It may be a photo. It may be that forbidden snack that you couldn't bring to the bedroom, but you stuffed it under there and forgot it for five years. It may be something that meant much or means much to you. But sometimes when we hide things under the bed, we're hiding things that we don't want anyone else to see. We're reading through the Bible together as a church family. If you're not joining us in those weekly readings, I would invite you to do that beginning today. All you have to do is go to the website and one of those buttons right there on the front page says, Reading the Bible. Or you can get a printed copy of our devotional daily readings. Because what we're reading during the week, we talk about on Sunday morning. And we're in the Old Testament account, the Old Testament historical book of Joshua in these days. Joshua chapter 7 talks about someone who hid things. For sometimes when you hide things to conceal things, it affects people all around you. The story of a man named Achan, A-C-H-A-N is the way you spell his name. But his story that picks up in chapter 7 of the book of Joshua, to me, talks about how the, the actions, rather really the sin of one person can affect many people. It says it right there in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of of Israel. Hiding things, concealing things, seeking to keep things hidden in a dark place. To catch you up on the chain of events that led to chapter 7, verse 1, you remember that the children of Israel had been in bondage for 400 years in Egypt. Going all the way back to the book of Exodus, you find the leader named Moses. His commission was to take the people and to lead them out of bondage, out from Egypt, and to bring them to a promised land. That was God's ultimate purpose. And God's ultimate purpose is always accomplished. But in this case, there were a few excursions, a few distractions the nation had to take. Because of an unfaithful generation, you remember that they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. A generation had to pass the scene before 
the younger people, before the next generation was entrusted the, the task to take that land of promise. And the book of Joshua recounts the leadership of the man whose name is at the head of the book, Joshua. He knew Moses. He loved Moses. And he became the next leader of the nation. It's Joshua's task to take the people from the border, the southern border of the land of promise, we call it Israel, and to help them accomplish the task, to take the land, to take possession of Canaan. That was what it was called in that day and time. To inherit the gift of God. They marched and they had a miraculous victory over the leading city in the southern part of that land of promise, Jericho. And then it's after the, the conquest of Jericho where they face a little bitty village called I or A-I, two letters long. Joshua was so confident of what was going to happen that he only sent 3,000 warriors to that village thinking that he would give the rest of the nation a break and that they could just simply wait for the news of the victory to happen. But it didn't happen that way. The Scripture tells us in the early chapters of Joshua that the 3,000 warriors who went up against I or AI were demolished. They were humiliated. They were turned back and they were treated. And in the ultimate aftermath, they lost 36 of their soldiers. You might say, well, losing 36, 36 casualties out of 3,000 may not be that many, but every life counts, of course. And the humiliation, the fact that Joshua knew something was wrong. Chapter 7, verse 1 tells us what was wrong that a certain man named Achan took things under the ban. What is the ban? The ban was a directive that God gave to the people that simply stated this, I'm going to lead you to take possession of the land of promise, but here's what you must do for me. These battles that you're going to wage, this war that is going to commence with the falling of the walls of the city of Jericho, you are not to celebrate. You are not to take the spoils of these battles and to take them for your own. This is no winner-take-all attitude that you're to have. This is not a situation where you're to rejoice and to celebrate your victory. This is my war, God would say. This is my ultimate task. I am using you and I will bless you. But you're not going to be selfish in this. And so every time you have a victory... You bring everything of value to the temple and you return it to me. You give it back to me as an offering because I own all things anyway. But one man, Achan, saw some things in Jericho when the battle was over and he took them. As we read through chapter 7, it seems relatively insignificant. He, he took a piece of material that would be known later as from the land of Babylon. Shinar was what he called it. So he took a beautiful piece of material, textiles, and he took an amount of silver, a bar that didn't weigh more than two or three pounds based upon our comparison of weight, and he took some gold that weighed about 1.1 pounds, most people would say. Those three things he took and 
He hid under his tent, dug a hole in the ground, didn't put them under his bed, put them in the ground under the perimeter of his tent and left them there. The scripture recounts that Joshua knew that when the conquest of Ai turned into a rout of Israel and those 3,000 less 36 casualties reported back, Joshua went to pray. And the scripture says there in verse 7, in chapter 7, that Joshua, this is verse 6, just listen, Joshua tore his clothes and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel. They put dust on their heads, and Joshua said, praying, Alas, O Lord, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan, only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. What can I say, since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? And the Lord replied, Joshua, get up. Why is it that you've fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. You know, folks, Joshua went to pray, and it's almost as though God said, Joshua, your prayers aren't what I'm asking for right now. I want you to get up, and I want you to take action. Perhaps there's a hidden underlying lesson here that sometimes we know what God wants us to do. We know what God expects of us. It doesn't take a solemn assembly. It doesn't take hours of prayer. It doesn't take hands folded, eyes closed, heads bowed in order to pray and ask God for direction when it's as though he is saying, just like he said to Joshua, Joshua, get up. You know, obviously, what's happened here. There is sin in the camp. The remaining verses of chapter 7 say that they went through a very deliberate elimination process. And just as 7-1 told us, the family lineage of Achan, they lined up the tribes of Israel the next day. And as they marched before Joshua, the process of elimination zeroed in to where Achan was the one who was pinpointed. He had concealed it up to this time, it appears. He had acted like in the midst of a a nation this big, of an army this big, that no one would be able to pinpoint his sin. But under the direction of God, Joshua came right down to the man and pled with Achan, the Scripture says, to confess, to admit. And Achan did. When push came to shove, he had to pull that which was hidden under his mattress, if you will. He admitted freely. I did. I sinned. I took a piece of cloth from Shinar and I took just an amount of silver and an amount of gold and you'll find them hidden under the corner of the perimeter of my tent. And there they found those goods and they brought them back to Joshua. And then the part that is so hard for me to understand, for me to grasp, is that the sin of this one man named Achan meant the execution of he and his whole family, of him everything that he owned. People will scratch their heads and they'll come back and they'll ask questions that are rightfully asked. Does the punishment fit the crime? Achan was the one who committed the sin. 
Maybe perhaps the underlying issue is his family aided him. His family ignored it knowing what had happened. We have to understand and know that these are different days than the ones we live in today. Even God's ultimate revelation has yet to be seen in Jesus and his admonition to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. And it appears that there's a period of history right here what we're dealing with where the nation is so fragile, where God is so insistent that the nation become what it's intended to be and to take that land of promise to where even the actions of one Everyone within that circle of influence is held accountable. It's more of a corporate identity than the act of the individual. I tell you, folks, I've thumbed through many commentaries. I've read many scholarly articles trying to, to come up with a simple pat answer. And there isn't one other than what happened here happened. That a time and a period in the history of God's people There was a man whose actions affected so many people, affected a military conquest that went south, that failed, affected his family, affected his animals, his livestock, his way to make a living, all destroyed. That's chapter 7. Chapter 8 picks right up to where God said, now the people, the nation, The conquest can move forward. Is this the only man who committed a sin during the conquest? I'm sure it wasn't. Joshua is seen as making some blunders here in two or three chapters and and coming up with an alliance with a group of pagan people that cost the nation dearly. But yet it's the sin of Achan. The sin of one man that had such a ripple domino effect upon other situations, and other supposedly innocent people. It's a hard passage. The last thing I want to do is spiritualize a passage like this. And by that I mean, well, let's just forget what literally happened and draw some life lessons. I don't think that's doing justice to this passage. I don't want to allegorize it. Some people would do that. Allegorizing means that you say, this story didn't really happen, but it represents some very important things. And Achan would represent this, or the nation would represent that. And you tend to take the story and to raise it to a very high symbolic level. There's some lessons to be learned here. But every time I come across this passage, and I'll admit, I try to ignore it as much as I can. But whenever God's word is turned to this page, something right here grabs hold of me. And it hurts. So acknowledging that in a certain day, in a certain period of history in this world, there was a family, a pack of animals that were destroyed because of the sin of one man named Achan. And not trying to say that if you do this or you do that, you will be destroyed. I don't know how to apply this passage literally to the day in which we live other than to say that 
the God we serve moves in mysterious ways. And we know that ultimately his progressive knowledge to us culminated in a man who went to a cross named Jesus. And we find forgiveness there. But in working all of those issues around in my head, I do want to stress that the actions of all of us are important. And sometimes they are crucial. I also want to stress that the actions, the sinful actions of one can have devastating effects, but also to consider the fact that the righteous acts of one person can indeed turn the tide. Our faithfulness to God that may seem so insignificant in the big picture is vitally important. The very opening chapters of Joshua prove that the actions of one person, a woman named Rahab, she was a lady of questionable reputation. She acted faithfully, and she and her family were spared when all of Jericho was torn asunder. For indeed, the actions of one person in the scene of Rahab in the mind and in the actions of that woman, her faithfulness, one person's faithfulness made a huge difference. Perhaps it's a matter of perspective for many of us. Perhaps what we need in a day and age in which we live in the year 2010, where the rules of engagement and war are vastly different from that day. And as we salute veterans, as we give thanks for their service on Veterans Day for those who live today and on Memorial Day when we think of those who have given their lives the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom and we think of the perspective of, of military service and of engagement of battle here and there and across this globe may seem vastly different. A matter of perspective in all areas of life might do us a little good. Did you know that there are pockets of persecution on this earth today regarding Christians, churches? I mean, literal persecution. There's a group of people who live in our area, the Louisville Fire Mount Highland Village area, called Chin. They are a group from the land called Burma, and these people come to our nation. They come and resettle here in our part of the world because of religious persecution. That's why they run. That's why they flee their homes. That's why they arrive here with very little. And that's why perhaps one person's prayers, one person's action toward those people is making a difference. There is a, a group, a pocket of people in our very church who give a significant amount of time and energy toward helping these families, the Chin families, to feel welcome in a strange place, to find a place to live, to stock that place where they live with staples, with food, with furniture. Because the prayers of one, because the actions of one positively make a difference. Yes. 
I went to the meeting of the Baptist General Convention of Texas this past Monday and Tuesday. You may not know it, but our church participates with over 5,000 other Baptist congregations in the state of Texas in pooling resources, in accomplishing ministry, in educating people, in taking care of people through health care facilities. So when we give tithes and offerings in the life of a church like ours, we are helping hospitals all across the state and schools to educate, seminaries to train ministers, all kinds of ministry, all the way from one end of our state to the other. Well, we meet once a year, and two or three of us manage to go down to McAllen. It's all the way down at the bottom of the state, if you didn't know that, all the way at the tip. I have a friend who's pastor of First Baptist Del Rio. His name is Jack Johnson. I met Jack several years ago. Jeff Johnson, excuse me. I met him several years ago and don't keep up with him, but I ran into him after he led a prayer time at one of the meetings this past week. And I asked him, I said, Jeff, what is it really like along the border? I mean, we hear the reports, we hear the news, we, we know that, you know, it's a hot political item about border. But what is, it, what, what, what is it like for you? And he said, I'll tell you what it's like for me. He said, I had a church family come to me week before last and said, Preacher, we've been hooked. And he said, Stephen, hooked means that you have been contacted by someone And they have demanded you perform a certain task. And if you don't, then there will be dire consequences. So when this family came to my door and said, Pastor, we've been hooked. He said, I knew exactly what they were facing. In this particular instance, this family had found a briefcase filled with American dollars, a substantial amount, hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash. And there was a note on that briefcase that said, this is to be delivered across the border to Matamoros, to this address. And if you don't, we will take your children. I stood there. I said, now, what'd that family do? He said, we have a network And we made arrangements with a phone call or two, and those people had to leave everything. They walked away from it. And we've helped relocate them somewhere else. And he said, and if it's ever found out that the pastor of First Baptist Church, Del Rio, helped that family, he said, I will probably be hooked as well. Now, folks, that's going on on the American side of the border. This is the city of Del Rio. That's what the church is facing. You need a little perspective? What's the last thing you really took seriously in the life of a church like ours? Was it that a particular worship service wasn't conducted like you wanted it to be conducted? Is the biggest issue of life griping about something or someone? 
Is the main interest on your heart the gossip that you can spread, that you heard, and you need to pass along that will do no one any good, but it will only serve to help undermine the ministry and the life of this church? I mean, who are we? Who do we think we are? Do we not understand? Do we not have a little perspective that the outburst of one person, be it me or thee, the outburst of one, the poor attitude of one, the spiritual immaturity of one, the incessant griping of one person can be just like the sin of a man named Achan. And it can cause a ripple effect of dissatisfaction and of frustration, of strife. When all along, there are people right down there on the border in English-speaking or bilingual-speaking churches that are on our side of the border, and they're dealing with church problems like this family just got hooked by a cartel. Would it be that if we went to our knees and began to pray and ask God, what's the matter with us, that he might say, Stephen, get up. Why are you wasting prayers like that when you know the problem? There's sin in the church. The actions of one, for the positive, for the negative, for the good, for the bad, our actions make a difference. The loving sacrifice of one affects us all as well. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. More, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. My ultimate thanksgiving prayer is that I was born on this side of the cross. Yes, my actions make a difference. My sinfulness can harm others, as yours also can do. But we have an advocate. We have a fuller revelation. We have something that the people in Joshua's day only saw dimly. If they saw it at all, we see the ultimate answer for sin. It's to be found only in Christ Jesus and His death upon the cross. And by His atoning sacrifice, we are made right with God. And we are given the opportunity to make our actions count for that which is Christ-honoring. Because I want my actions, though I'm not perfect, I want my actions to be those that encourage and build up. That's the power of one. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to be in your house today.
to open your word, to spend time in a service like this, looking at different issues of life, but looking to you for the ultimate answer. Lead us and guide us, Lord. It's in the name of Christ I offer this prayer. Amen. We offer an invitation as we wrap up this service this morning. It may be that someone is in this very room and you've never said yes to Jesus. We had one who was baptized at the top of this hour. If you never followed the Lord in believer's baptism, if you know him, set that example. Maybe you're here today and God is leading you to join this church. Maybe you're searching for a place to belong and to plug in. And you feel that this is where God is leading you. And then maybe sitting in this room today, you're a Christian, you're a church member. Whatever the case may be, maybe God is just simply reminding you that we all have a tendency to hide things. And the actions of one person can indeed make a difference. And why don't you just pray for a little perspective that... What's going on in your life? What's going on in the life of those you influence, the life of your church? You would see God at work. And maybe it'll take looking somewhere else. Maybe it'll take hearing someone else's story for you and me to be humiliated to the point of saying, I'm going to obey. I'm going to do what's right instead of just what's right for me. What kind of changes would take place in a church like ours and the community in which we live if just a group of people like this or just one of us said I'm going to do God's will that's our invitation we stand together we sing we wait for you here in the front won't you step out won't you come forward right now